You're listening to The Dr. Nina Show with Dr. Nina Savelle Rockland, only on L.A. Talk Radio. Hi there. Welcome to The Dr. Nina Show here on L.A. Talk Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Nina Savelle Rockland, and I am here to help you stop counting calories, carbs, and fat grams so you can easily get to a healthy weight and get on with your life. If you would like to call in and talk with me today, the number is 323-203-0815. That is 323-203-0815. I would love to hear what is on your mind. What is at you? What is with binge eating, stress eating, any kind of emotional eating, of course, is not what you are eating. It is what is eating at you, what is weighing on you. So let's talk about that. Let's not talk about the, 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 the solution to the problem, which is food. Let's talk about the real problem and how those two relate. Okay, so something I wanted to discuss while I'm waiting for all you callers to call in. Uh, you can also, people on Instagram, feel free to leave a comment. Sharon, Samantha, leave a comment if you have a, or a question on Instagram as well. So... One thing that I've been hearing a lot now that we're a little bit starting to open up post-pandemic, as if it's post-pandemic, what am I saying? That is wishful thinking. One of the things that uh, I'm hearing as we're, 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 we're opening the door back to the post-pandemic world, back to normal, is people saying, oh my gosh, I wasted my time. I had a year. I didn't write my great American novel or my great, you know, British novel. I didn't I didn't even clean up my garage. I I didn't learn French. I didn't learn Latin. I didn't do all of those lofty aspirational things that I thought I would do. And now I feel terrible about myself. And so I wanted to share this article from the New York Times business section this last Sunday and it's called We Have All hit the wall. For those of you who can relate to the the notion that um, you just didn't do enough while you were dealing with a pandemic, while you had ambient anxiety every day, while you were maybe dealing with job loss, job uncertainty, uh, having another job, uh, which is taking care of your kids as you're doing your regular job, suddenly everything changes. The, The rug is pulled from underneath you. And yet somehow you should have written that great American novel or learned another language or, you know, fill in, fill in the blank. So, so this is, so this is for anyone who could relate to that, who feels as if they uh, did not do enough. And of course, when you are uh, kind of critical to yourself, when you're mean to yourself and you say, I didn't do enough, I didn't make the most of my time or whatever it is that you're saying that's mean, then you're going to feel terrible. You're going to feel bad. Oh, I didn't do enough. I suck. And then you're vulnerable to eating to get away from your own mean voice and to cope with the bad feeling that you have just created within yourself by being so harsh with yourself. So I want to share this article. Uh, uh, Josh is saying, let's make up for it now. Let's make up for it now. Well, yes, let's create a, a more realistic, softer, gentler, nicer response to ourselves. 
because that is really the key to changing your relationship with food. It's changing your relationship to yourself. When you are supportive of yourself, when you encourage yourself, when you are kind to yourself, guess what? You feel good. And when you feel good, you're not going to use food to escape a bad feeling because you don't feel bad. You're not going to use food to cope, to go numb, to escape, to reward any of those things because you've rewarded yourself with words. You've been kind to yourself. You've been a friend to yourself. Okay, so my totally cool blue, Blu-ray light, blue light blocking glasses. They also help me read. So, okay, we have all hit the wall. Who can relate? Who can relate to this? Uh, let's be kinder to ourselves, but let's also have a little plan um, for how to something less or how to, I'm not sure I'm reading that right. Yes, we need to be kind to ourselves. And of course we need a plan, but have we, but, but part of the plan is to be encouraging because when you discourage yourself, um, then you're, you're often stuck in, in paralysis. When you encourage yourself, you're more likely to move ahead. Uh, when we also have a little plan for how to suck less. Yes. Yes. Um, so one of the ways for it to suck less is to change the way we think about um, to, uh, to change the way we think about our situation. If we look back in the last year and we say, oh, I wasted all my time. I didn't clean the garage. My closets are still a mess. I haven't written that book, that screenplay. I haven't learned French. Um, all of the things that the, these are things people have told me over the last couple of weeks. I've actually said all of these things. And that's why I'm thinking a lot of other of you can relate, which is why I want to share um, this article. I also invite you to interrupt me at any time and give me a call if there's something you want to talk about. And 323-203-0815. Um, like many of us, the writer Susan Orlean is having a hard time concentrating these days. Good morning to everyone, she tweeted recently, but especially to the sentence I just rewrote for the 10th time. I feel like I'm in quicksand, she said. I'm just so exhausted all the time. I'm doing so much less than I normally do. I'm not traveling. I'm not entertaining. I'm just sitting in front of a computer, but I am accomplishing way less. It's like a whole new math. I have more time and fewer obligations yet I'm getting so much less done. Call it a late pandemic crisis of productivity, of will, of enthusiasm, enthusiasm of purpose. Call it a bout of existential work-related ennui, provoked partly by the realization that sitting in the same chair in the same room, staring at the same computer for 12 straight months and counting has left many of us feeling like burned-out husks dim-witted approximations of our once productive selves. What time is it? What day is it? What did we do in October? Why are we standing in front of the refrigerator staring at an old clove of garlic? Just recently, says the writer, um, I spent a half an hour struggling to retrieve a word from the faulty memory system that has replaced my pre-pandemic brain. Institution, that was the word. 
sometimes when I try to write a simple email, I feel like I'm just pushing words around like peas on a plate, hoping they will eventually coalesce into sentences. So who can relate? Who can relate to this feeling of, oh, just no energy, can't think, the sameness, the relentless sameness, which really creates a sense of just just static deadness. And by the way, where does food come into this? Sometimes we eat to enlighten ourselves. Sometimes, sometimes when we're anxious, we can eat things that will sedate us, that will have that sedative effect, especially a lot of carbs that just kind of had that, that blah feeling. So if you're all amped up and you eat a bunch of carbs, your body is going to calm down. Um, but we also do the opposite when we're tired. Sometimes we go in, uh, Josh is calling. So let me finish my thought. Sometimes when we're tired, uh, we will eat uh, chocolate or sugary things to amp ourselves up. Hi, Josh. Hi, Dr. Nina. How's it going? Uh, can you hear me? I hear you perfectly. Okay, good. Um, so I want to talk to you about what you started the program with. Um, I might have been just a minute late, but I heard you talking about how we can be too critical on ourselves uh, concerning kind of coming back from the pandemic um, and maybe comparing our pre-pandemic selves with ourselves now. And um, it made me think of maybe, is there a connection between that and the fear of success? Or maybe you can clear that up for me. Well, it could be. I mean, these, I know I wrote about fear of success on Instagram today. And fear of success, just like fear of failure, is um, often tied to, uh, I mean, this is a great question. Um, It's often tied to what will happen when we do the thing that we want to do. And and as long as the thing we want to do exist in our imagination, whether that's losing weight or writing a book or whatever, it's like, it's perfect. You can imagine, oh, you lose weight and then you're going to have the life you want to have. It, it, it is this beautiful life in which people treat you differently. You feel good about yourself. All is, all is generally well. If you write a book before you've written it, it, it's, it exists as, as a perfect potential book. And then the reality, once it has been achieved, is, you know, I've written three books. I can tell you, I look back and I go, oh, my God, oh, the, the, the copy editor missed that word. Or why did I say that? Or no, no longer is it the perfect book. Or people lose weight and their lives are not what they imagine it to be. Their lives are not um, the way that they hope it would be with success. And so, therefore... Um, it's easier to not have it, right? To 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 have the idea that when I am successful, my life will be perfect or great. As long as that's never challenged, you can never let yourself be successful. Other people are afraid of success because they think that good will lead to bad. So um, uh, they think that, oh, if something good happens, something bad is going to happen. Or they, they feel guilty as if they're not allowed to feel too good about themselves. So there are a lot of reasons why 
people might not achieve what they want to achieve and might not have allow themselves to have the success that they want. It's all very individualized. Um, recently, I told someone that psychology as a concept pertains to that which relates to the most people. So, for, from, so psychology is what affects the most people the same way. But psychoanalysis is really, well, what, you know, the study of an individual, what is it that, um, that this person is, is dealing with? Um, so yes. And we have a book writer on Instagram saying that she is okay with not having written her perfect book. Nothing is perfect. Exactly. That's what we intellectually know. There's what we know. There's logical and then there's psychological. So, Josh, I'm not sure that answers your question, but that could be a component of why uh, people have not allowed themselves to do what it is they set out to do, whether it's in the pandemic or at other times. Yeah, um, and I think, um, you know, for me, the connection between uh, fear of success and a critical mind would seem to be that, you know, our critical nature is making it feel as though we're afraid of success when obviously it's crazy to be afraid of success. Success is what we, you know, labor day after day after day to attain. But the superego, the critical side of us says, hold on a second. You know, I don't think this is going to be good for you. You're a lousy person you're you're kind of a bad person or it's much better to stay sick or it's 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 not in your best interest to be healthy it's better to be in this lowered state am i right about that you are you are you are right and you are wrong because you would be right for someone who has that relationship to to themselves and you would be wrong for someone who has a fear of success for other reasons, not relating to some um, sense of, uh, of of guilt or, 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 you know, having to suffer some attachment to suffering. I mean, there are many reasons why people don't let themselves succeed. Sometimes it's cultural. If, if you grow up in a family of um, say working class, a working class family, and you become a lawyer on the one hand, you have been successful. On the other hand, you have transcended that which your family has achieved and you might feel guilty and then be unable to enjoy that. Um, you might feel uh, not part of the family. There are, there are many reasons why. There, you might fear it because you think, oh, just when something good happens, which is related to fear of happiness, which is consciously people say, of course, I want to be happy. What are you kidding me? Of course, I don't, I'm not afraid of happiness. But they unconsciously have some prohibition against it. So you know, you're not allowed to be happy. It's noble to suffer. You, you, know, you, you're, you feel guilty about something. The answer to guilt is punishment. Guilty people are supposed to suffer. They're not supposed to be successful. So when I say guilt, it means sometimes unconscious guilt or guilt, for example, the, the person who came from the, the, the family of, of you know, bricklayers who became a lawyer. Well, you know, felt guilty. 
consciously doesn't make sense, logically doesn't make sense, but unconsciously and psychologically make a lot of sense. So one particular individual. Yeah, and I, I think that you're saying that, um, just to rephrase what you just said, we, we go all along our life and then suddenly we're stuck. And you're, you're saying that it's going to be because of an unconscious element. Often an unconscious element. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's why so, we can't yeah. fight. We, we can't, we can't fight what we can't see. That's why one of the analogies I like to make to this work that I do is you can't, is, you, you can't fight an invisible army. You just get beaten up. But when you make the army visible, then you see what you are fighting and then you can fight. And so the analytic perspective is let's look in the dark and discern what it is that's going on that you're consciously unaware of. It's out of awareness, but it's not out of operation. And once you see it, then you can do something about it. Right. So it makes me think that as I'm going through my life, I am i shouldn't beat myself up if I'm stuck or if I'm having difficulty getting to the next phase in life because I might be unconsciously preventing myself from it. I might have all the tools and all the ability and all the mind and body necessary, but unconsciously I might be in my way. Exactly. That is exactly right. That and and that may be one of a number of different things. You you just don't know what it is that is in your in the dark, and that's why I say I am a detective of the mind, helping people to get clues as to what it is in there in the dark, and then we bring it into the light, and then we can deal with it. But to do that, you've got to have a curious attitude. And so many people are not curious. As you know, they're critical. They beat themselves up. They, in the arena of you know, food, weight, body image issues, they call themselves names. They say, oh, you're such a, you're such a loser. You're so, you, you have no control. You have no willpower. What's wrong with you? You, you know better, or, you know, why aren't you this? And why aren't you that? And they often talk to themselves in second person, by the way, which is why I'm doing that. Um, but when you can change uh, that and highlight where, where does that voice come from? Whose voice is that? Let's challenge that voice. Let's change that voice. Then you change the way you feel about yourself and the way you are in the world. Um, so would you say that the voice itself is part of the discovery? In other words, the voice could be unconscious. Yes, the voice, like when you talk to yourself in second person, when you say, hey, you know, you and <laughs> Erica saying, I don't know anyone who talks to themselves like that. <laughs> yeah, she's being funny because, we, you know, most people who struggle with food, weight, body image and other things are harsh on themselves. They do, they do not support themselves. They castigate themselves. They, they deride themselves. They, they slave drive themselves. They see the worst, not the best. 
And they learned how to do that. You learned how to have that attitude towards yourself. Josh, since I'm talking to you, let's talk, let's be direct. You learn this way of relating to yourself. And the good news is you can unlearn it and you can learn a different way. Yeah, and I think I think that's, that's right. So, so really, the the critical voice is the thing that we discover um, as a part of the work that you do. And once you discover that, then you can sort of say, "Hey, maybe that's not entirely true." You can challenge it. Is that basically what you're saying? Yes. Whose voice is that? Where did you come to? believe these things about yourself is this that something is this something that someone said to you or is this an interpretation that you made about yourself that that an interpretation of events that is now now become what you believe is reality about yourself yeah and that's probably inherited from the parent parents siblings, grandparents, sometimes teachers. It is from an environment, it's from your environment, which does not mean that your parents necessarily did anything wrong. I mean, obviously there are a lot of parents who did a lot wrong, but there are also parents who just, you know, do the best they can, but they, there's a mismatch. For example, using myself as an example, my parents are academic college professors, very sort of quiet, academic. You know, my dad is very funny in in front of an audience, but (laughs) we were not the audience. So I'm in this, I'm in this family where it's like be studious and study and, and learn and be quiet and read and all of that. And I wasn't that that into reading. I wanted to I wanted to talk about shoes. <laughs> you know, I wanted to play dress up. I wanted to have fun. And that and so there was this, this energetic mismatch in my family where I was perceived as too much. And that too muchness in my mind became literally too much me. Um and so that's an what? example of I wasn't told I was ever, oh you're, you know, you're fat. No one ever said that, but I felt fat even though I wasn't, because I felt like too much, too much in that family. And that's an example of how you can take a, a situation and interpret it and interpret it against yourself, and that becomes reality. Right. And you can't separate that from the actual reality that maybe it's too harsh, too critical, and wrong. Is that right? It doesn't seem too critical, too harsh. It seems like reality. That's the problem. And then, so the, so what I'm here to help people do is to, to look at that and say, wait a minute, that is not the reality. That is a reality that you've, perception is reality. That's what you've come to believe, but let's look at where that comes from and what other beliefs that can can you create and and perceive about yourself as the way that you perceive yourself the way you think changes the way you feel which changes what you do which is why focusing on behavior whether it's emotional eating or binge eating or binging and purging or restricting or whatever it is focusing on the behavior doesn't work 
you, that's the plucking of the the weeds that I'm so fond of saying in my weed root analogy. You've got to get to that root, and part of getting to the root is what are the thoughts and beliefs that you have about yourself, which creates the way you feel. Let's look at where it comes from and create new ways of understanding yourself. Yeah, that's uh, really, really helpful to me uh, personally, because you take, since you've had them since, not since birth, but if they came from your parents, then you've had them since age five, say. So like most of us are older than age five. So we've had things uh, quite a long time. And it's probably very difficult to see them versus our regular adult self who is creative and who is friends and who's loving and caring and smart and professional and everything else. Exactly. There's a bit of a split. There's the, the, the inner self and the inner self within that might not feel so good about himself or herself or is a taskmaster or just doesn't feel, doesn't feel sufficient for whatever reason. And then there's the, the adult who treats other people. What I find is people treat other people the way they would have liked to be treated, but they treat themselves in a totally different way. And, um, and I just want to say, Barbara, author of, um, the book she she wrote a great book guys it's called from unruly to therapy dog um which is an ama- amazing journey about a dog but really it's about um it's about how we can change and how we can grow and how we can show up differently in our lives um barbara is saying what you think about yourself impacts everything because when you think that you're not so good and you're mean to yourself and you're cruel to yourself and you meet someone else who's judgmental and mean and cruel, you're going to say, wow, you know me, <laughs> let's be together. And, and if you then change your relationship to yourself and you are kind, supportive, generous, understanding, non-perfectionistic, and you meet someone who's cold and cruel and, and, and judgmental and critical, you're going to say, you know what? No, thank you. You are not going to be in my life. Get out of here, which changes your relationships, um, which changes, you know, which changes everything. Because when we have fulfilling, gratifying relationships, listen to the language, fulfilling, satisfying. We use those same words about food. When we have fulfilling relationships, we don't need to fill up on food as a substitute. Right. And I think that um, I think that it's important to maybe point out that maybe sometimes we also have areas that really aren't good, sort of like we might not want to look in the closet, you know, not necessarily unconscious, just sort of like you have a relationship that's not so good and you're unwilling to look at it or you have a job situation that isn't good and you're unwilling to look at it. You, you sort of would rather do something to distract yourself from some real problem. Or, or you have, let's take the job situation. In our unconscious minds, jobs, uh, work, 
work environments recreate original family environments. So we unconsciously perceive our boss as parents and our uh, coworkers as siblings. And so unbeknownst to us, uh, AKA unconsciously, you know, we can, we can tolerate uh, the same situations we had earlier. We can try to get from our boss what we couldn't get from our parents. We can start competing with our siblings the way we did. Um, so it, it, it's really important to look at what's going on and what's going on symbolically. And the whole point is the past is not in the past until you work through it. The past haunts our present. So if we have, let's use the let's use a, a, a other than critical Josh what what's another word that comes to mind about a a parent that not not critical so what else comes to mind for you uh other than critical i would say um uh i would say well unfortunately i would say strong that's sort of critical isn't it would you say let, let's say indifferent could it Indifferent, okay, like ambiguous or or ambivalent, maybe. Indifferent, not really caring about you, not listening to some kind of indifferent to. Oh, you're going to be okay. okay. You're fine. Dismissive, indifferent. Well, if you have that that situation in parent in one of your parents or a, an adult who's very meaningful to you, and it is unresolved, then we try to heal that original wound through representations of that, that original person. So when we go to work, if we had a, an indifferent parent or a dismissive parent, we're going to go to work and we're going to stay perhaps in a, in a job with a, with an indifferent boss, because we're going to try to get that boss to do what our parents never did, which is become interested or a dismissive boss for, for you to, to turn that person into the into a different kind of person. And we see this in relationships too, right? People, they don't want the nice guy. They want the jerk guy who turns into the nice guy because they had a jerk dad or a jerk mom and they could never get that person to give them what they wanted. So it's it's not even that they want the the, the nice person. They want the the turning of the original relationship in this new relationship. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it does. And it makes me think of if you had a, you know, kids are kids and sometimes we get into trouble. And if the parent was super strict and, and scary and punishing, we might want to take that into the world, you know, as an adult and say, oh, OK, I'm going to get away with it this time. Uh, and yet every time you don't get away with it, it happens repeatedly that you the repast repeats itself, that you continually getting punished uh, for the same thing that you still, as a child, want to get away with. Exactly. Or, or you perceive people as being punitive when you're not trying to get, you're not trying to get away with something. You're just living your life, but you're being perceiving people as being more punitive than they are. But the good news is that you can stop being haunted by the past and see bosses as bosses and who they are and, 
and girlfriends and boyfriends and husbands and wives and people as they are without that layer of the past person by healing the past. And then and you get the, rid and of it. You can also make food just food. Exactly. Exactly. So because food is so symbolic, our first experience of relationship is that of being fed. And so although we don't think of it consciously this way, food equals relationship. You know, food equals love, but food equals relationship. And that's why when we talk about comfort food, we're really talking about a wish to be comforted. When we talk about, you know, we're hungry for love, we're starving for affection or attention. It's using food language with the language of unresolved relationship. And that's why so often people um, I think that you and I are very different because I feel like you as a child wanted to be small. And I think as a child, I wanted to be big. And so I, I think I've always, I thought about us as being very opposite in that way. Um, where at one point in childhood, you thought I'm too big. Uh, and, and I must've thought I was too small. And I feel like there must be a really perfect balance in between the two. Um, and I really feel like our childhoods were kind of opposite in that way. Well, I would, I would look at it perhaps another way, which is, yes, you wanted to be bigger and I wanted to be smaller, which is very common in a gender situation too. But I'd say I wanted to be smaller to be lovable and you wanted to be bigger to have a sense of what? To achieve thing to be lovable, to be loved too. Right. Right. So therefore it's just different approaches, but wishing for a similar outcome that you're looking for, you're looking to change your body to get some kind of acceptance. And this is, and this is the problem, right? Because we can't, we change our bodies. It doesn't bring us more or, or less acceptance. I don't think anyone has ever said, wow, my friend lost weight. And now I like my friend so much better or, oh, my friend gained weight. And you know what? I don't like that person anymore. It just doesn't work that way. But we like to have, it might just have to do with our gender, with our gender. You know, um, your gender was female. My gender was male. And like you said, the female gender might want to be smaller. And the male gender at five might want to be bigger. Yes. Yeah. But, but, but for the same purpose is, is my point, that it's opposite. Absolutely. Size. Oh, 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I think that some parents don't assign their children genders. They allow the boy to kind of look and play like a girl and almost dress up the boy as the girl. And that likewise with their young children of five, say they let the girl, or I don't even know what I just said, but you know, the boy dress up as the girl and the girl dress up as the boy. So sometimes when you see a child, um, especially from sort of progressive families, it's very difficult to figure out if the boy is a boy and the girl is a girl. I think because they're trying to protect them from this very thing. Maybe you would, know more than me about this but um 
again, it's it's different all the time. I, I know one family and I, I was really struck because the mother is very beautiful, very, very beautiful, um, long blonde hair, actually quite a famous actress and her daughters all looked very boy-like, short hair, dressed like boys, had boy haircuts. Um, and it was my thought, I mean, I don't know, but it was my thought that they couldn't compete. You know, there, that you're, there was some kind of prohibition against competing with beautiful mom. And so, you know, you had to look the opposite of mom, uh, lest you, you compete with her. So that's an example of, 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 of that. So, it, and again, it's always different. Everyone has a different reason for doing what they're doing. And we want to look at well, yeah. what is the reason for you? Yeah. And I feel like that family that you mentioned, it could be that, but then I would, I would look at it and say, well, maybe the mom is protecting the girl who looks like a boy. So that she won't make the mistake maybe that you made when you were a girl so that the, so that the girl won't think she's too small because after all, she kind of looks like a boy. (laughs) Does that make sense? Josh, you have a very creative mind. I think if you if you ever want to take up a analyst. different profession, you're the analyst, not me. Not, I'm not the analyst. If you yet. ever if you ever want to take up a different profession, I, I I see psychology in your future, or you know a different a different life maybe. There are all kinds well, actually, of possibilities. I, I do I do meditation, so I meditate. But meditation is, I think, very similar to psychoanalysis. At least the kind of meditation that I do is sort of a deeper meditation than the sort of the mindfulness, the popular mindfulness culture. But um, so I look at like energies, like Kundalini, like, you know, uh, the awakening of the inner energy, you know, to to make one meditate. But it's not, not that far different from psychoanalysis. In fact, all of science is sort of in the same, in the same way. But I just love listening to you. And I love the fact that you're on the air and I love talking to you, but I'll, I'll, I'll shut up now. <laughs> so, well, um, I, can you reframe that? I'll shut up now. Yeah, I think, I think I just feel like I'm, I'm afraid to like hear myself later to see what I, what I had said. Like, hopefully I'm saying the right thing. <laughs> um, I, oh. I just want to point out how the I'll, I'll shut up now is a very subtle, I mean, look, semantics are so important, but it's a very subtle put down. It kind of, it kind of intimates, oh, I've been talking and talking and talking and now I'm going to shut up rather than, hey, I, you know, I, I'll, I'll let you go, but I, I always love your show without somehow putting yourself down, even in a very slight way. Those are those tiny moments that I want you to catch because they, they say something about you taking up space in other ways and feeling like too much. Yeah. And I think, I think, I think it, it, yeah, it's possible that I also sort of, by saying that I'm steering the conversation in a, in a, in a direction away from maybe trauma, because after all, you know, what we were talking about is trauma. I mean, you were trauma. You had the experience of trauma. I mean, you know, being a, a girl that thought she was too big is traumatic. And for me too, if I thought I was too small, 
that's trauma from my past. So maybe I was sort of unconsciously not going there. (laughs) Very good piece of self-analysis, Josh. (laughs) Thank you for calling as always. (laughs) I always enjoy our conversations. And I look forward to hearing from you hopefully next week. Okay, thank you very much. I'm going to say this. Thank you for putting up with me, but I mean that in the best possible way. Oh, we were so close. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll take it in the best possible way, but I want you to think of another way. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to hang up and then I'm going to listen to the show. Okay. All right. Thanks, Josh. Okay, thank you. Okay, bye. Bye. Uh, I just want to say that, um, oh, Barbara's asking, who is Josh? Josh is a caller who has started to call. He was an Instagram viewer for a long time, and he started to call the show. And, uh, you know, sometimes we get one, I get one caller, and sometimes I get three or four callers. So it's always different. And you are welcome to call as well. Um, In fact, anyone who would like to join, I have about nine minutes left on the show. Give me a call, 323-203-0815, and ask me a question. If you have a question, if you have a comment, um, I am here to talk with you. So I want to say something about what Josh just brought up, which is uh, the notion of trauma. And something that I hear a lot from people is, I wasn't traumatized. It wasn't so bad. I didn't get you know abused or anything. I wasn't like you know nothing terrible happened to me in my childhood, so I don't I'm not traumatized. Well, there are two kinds of traumas. One is the big, big incident, like one big bad trauma that is akin to a butcher knife, you know, through your heart, kind of a one big bad trauma, awful thing that happens to you. And that is really painful, of course. The other kind of trauma is akin to the thousand small cuts, right? So a thousand small cuts are just as painful as a one big bad terrible trauma. And a thousand small cuts could be the thousand cutting words that are spoken to you the thousand time that you you get uh you know play with me you know and you get not now i'm busy you know that hurts so these are these are cumulative traumas so when we talk about trauma there's big t trauma there's little t trauma and both affect you both have a deep effect in fact you know the the thousand small cuts little t trauma even has more effect i think because it's not recognized as traumatic it's well, why am i making such a big deal out of this i shouldn't be so hurt by this i shouldn't be affected by this and so on so w- remember that the responses to trauma whether it's big t or little t trauma are fight flight freeze and some now say fawn is another kind of response to trauma. So fight, you know, you, oh yeah, boom, 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 boom. Not literally physical fighting, but it can be, you know, you can get mad, you get get engaged and you go to anger because you feel traumatized. Uh, And and flight is, I am out of here. Eating, 
is a response to trauma that is in the form of flight. Because when you go into that food like zone that I've heard it called the dead zone, I've heard it called, you know, the blank zone, the zone, the binge zone, whatever it is, when you're eating, you're not feeling so much. So it is a way of escaping trauma or any traumatic thoughts or feelings or any feelings you know, whatsoever, really, any conflict. So fight, flight, freeze, of course, speaks for itself. You just can't move. You can't do anything. And fawn is when you're just really complimentary of the other person. You're trying to get the other person to like you by being super nice to them. And, oh, oh, I love your this and I love your that. And, oh, you know, I always think about this kind of trauma. I think about trauma when people say to me, oh, I, you know, I, I, I love your, your, what you're wearing. And oh my gosh, your, your wall art is so amazing. And they start giving me all these compliments. I go, my antenna goes, hmm. What are they warding off? Because that tells me they've had some kind of traumatic relational issue. And when relationships are traumatic, then you try to manage relationships by being, by, by fawning or, or uh, avoiding or things like that. Um, and if you don't have relationships that are fulfilling and gratifying, guess what? Food, which symbolizes relationship gets to be the substitute. People are unreliable, unpredictable, and unavailable. Food is reliable, predictable, and available. So often when you don't have safe relationships with people, you turn to food as a substitute. And how many times have you gone out to dinner with your friends and you just ate a salad and you were just in a perky mood, but even though inside you didn't feel like it because you were just playing the part of being the, the perky, happy, great you and, and really there for them and all of that. And then you go home and you just eat the kitchen because that's when you can finally just ah, be. And then, you know, it's like wearing a mask in the world. And then you come home and you go into the kitchen and the mask is gone. You can get in touch with your needs. And your, if your needs are to, for whatever reason, then you're going to do it with food. So understanding the, 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 the reasons for why you're turning to food are so, so, so important. If you just look at, oh, I, I can't believe I, I had salad and then I went home and I blew it. When I got home, how could I have done that? You do yourself a disservice. If you are turning to food, you are turning away from something else. You are turning away from something else. It is helping you in some way. Food is a frenemy. It helps you in some way. It numbs you. It fills you up when people don't. It, If you eat enough of it and you're in pain, it converts emotional pain to physical pain, which is a lot easier to get rid of than emotional pain. Food serves a purpose. It is a friend. It is also an enemy in that it hurts your body. It hurts, it hurts your relationship to yourself. It makes you feel miserable about you. But the good news is once you can identify what it's doing for you, you can find new ways of achieving that new ways of being with people, new ways of being with yourself. 
And when that happens, you will relate differently with food too. So that is just something that I wanted to add. And now I want to, I just want to finish what I started to talk about earlier, just really fast. Just want to normalize this idea that yes, we've had this year. And if you have not done all the things you promised yourself you could do, or if you feel yourself just unable to do the most basic things and you're asking yourself why, that is because people, people get fried when they spend a year in, within this ambient fear, anxiety, restlessness. Um, uh, bye, Barbara. I'm glad that you were. I'm glad you were here, Erica. Being with yourself is one of the most difficult things to do. If you don't like yourself, it is one of the most difficult things to do. But when you like yourself and you appreciate yourself and you love yourself without having to be perfect, you know, then it really is easy to be with yourself. So wrapping up, I just want to I just want to normalize for all of you who are saying, oh my God, I didn't do anything this whole year with the pandemic. Um the lot this is Natasha Raja. She's a, a professor of psychiatry at McGill. She specializes in memory and the brain, said the longevity of the pandemic, endless monotony laced with acute anxiety. <sighs> endless monotony laced with acute anxiety has contributed to a sense that time is moving differently, as if this year was a long, hazy, exhausting experience lasting forever, and yet at the same time, no time at all. Um, the stress and tedium have affected us. It affected, It's affected our memories. It's affected our way of just being, along with a general loneliness, social isolation, anxiety, and depression. It is no wonder that not only have you not learned French, Greek, Latin, Spanish, and written a book and written a screenplay and, you know, whatever, whatever else it is that you, you set out to do, you know, just getting through the day has been an achievement. So remember that, keep that in mind and be gentle with yourself. So that is our show for today. I am here every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific except for next week where I, I will be either later or I will be recorded. Um, uh, but thank you so much for joining me. Again, I'm here live every Wednesday. And you can also listen later on uh, Apple Podcasts or anywhere where you get podcasts. And uh, if you'd like to join my community, please head over to Facebook and join my Dr. Nina's Food for Thought community, where you can connect with me and... Uh, we we need to go from trauma to love, says Josh. Indeed, we need to go from trauma to love. Absolutely. If you want to go to from trauma to love and you want a little extra help, please join my Facebook community where you can we you can connect with me and lots of other people who get it, who are experiencing what you're going through. There are women and men in that community, and I invite you to join us. And until then, stay safe, stay well. Be nice to yourself. You deserve it. And I'll see you next week. Bye for now. You're listening to The Dr. Nina Show with Dr. Nina Savelle Rockland, only on LA Talk Radio.